Thank you for listening to the Reformation Bible Church podcast. We hope you are edified and encouraged by our ministry as you listen to our Gospel of John sermon series. For more sermons and resources, please visit the RBC website at www.rbcbakersfield.org. Thank you once again, and may the Lord bless you. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you for bringing us to this place this morning to come and to worship you in your word. As was just said, Lord, we worship you in light of the great gospel that you have graciously made available to us. And that we graciously, by grace and by faith and through repentance, receive. And Lord, we celebrate you this morning. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. Give us minds to to understand and and perceive, Lord, that which your word through your spirit is explaining to us this morning. Lord, I decrease that you may increase. I become less so that you can become more. I pray, our Lord, that you would move me out of the way this morning. That your people would not hear me or see me. But on this Lord's day, they would hear you and see you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us on this Lord's Day as we continue our exposition of the Gospel of John. Last week, we began the the 13th chapter of the Gospel of John. Christ has departed and concealed himself from the crowds. He is, at this point in time, uh, in the story, he is alone now with his disciples. And they are having a meal together before the Passover. As they are reclining at that meal, Luke tells us in the 22nd chapter of that book that there arose a dispute among those, uh, his disciples, among or about which of them would be considered the greatest or remembered to be the greatest among them. Uh, We don't know what sparked that dispute or what sparked that argument. We can, at best, Guess that it had something to do with the subject of washing feet. Foot washing was a customary task that was usually reserved for the servant of the house. If there was no servant in the house, the host would usually take it upon themselves to wash the feet of his guest. Are you with me? But there were occasions when there was no servant of the house of the house to perform this task. And there was also times when the host was a bad host and refused to wash the feet of his servants or of his guests. So the guests would either wash their own feet or the feet would remain unwashed. So we can assume at this point, and just as a side note, it is usually not a good idea or a wise idea to assume when it comes to studying the word of God. But In this case, we're simply trying to understand what events would cause Christ to do what we are going to see that he does. So we can assume at this point that no one's feet had been washed. Are you with me? And it is possible that a dispute arose as they are reclining with their feet near each other's neighbor, near their neighbor's head. Get your dirty feet out of my face. Well, my feet are just as dirty as yours. Maybe you should have washed my feet when we came in. Me, wash your feet. You should be the one washing my feet. I'm Peter. Or I'm John. I could call down fire from heaven. Or I'm James. Who do you think you are? And it is possible 
that this dispute over who was to be remembered as the greatest began with a conversation as immature as the one that I just shared with you. And as we noted last time, the task of washing feet was reserved for the lowest of the low servants. It was an embarrassing task. During the first century, the majority of people who went anywhere traveled wherever they went by foot. The, the land was not paved with stone as it is today. Dusty roads were the paths that people took to get to their destinations. And upon entering homes, this is why some of you don't like coming to my home because I ask you to take off your shoes. Their feet would be dirty, dusty, sweaty, and inevitably smelly, right? Nobody wants anything to do with dirty, dusty, smelly feet. And it's no wonder that this task was reserved for the lowest of the low. And interestingly enough, John the Baptist, when he was asked if he was the Christ, responded by saying in John 127, he was so low in comparison to Christ that he was not even worthy to untie the very sandals of the Messiah. Untying of sandals was a task that was meant for those who washed the feet of people. And that's how low John the Baptist saw himself in comparison to Christ. So as the dispute is taking place among these men who have spent the last three and a half years with the incarnate son of God, he once again condescends to humanity by doing something that they would have never anticipated, something that they would have never desired, and something that they would have also been embarrassed of. John 3, or 13, 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the feet of his disciples and to wipe them with a towel that was around his waist. Imagine this. The Lord of all creation, the one who formed and fashioned the feet of these sinful men, humbles himself once again and washes these sinful men dirty, stinking feet. The one who created their feet washes their feet. That task that was meant for, for servants and for lowly people was performed by the one who said in Matthew twenty eight twenty that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There are endless lessons that we can learn from our Lord in this great act of service. This morning, we will see just two points. Number one, we will see Peter's Hasty ignorance. And number two, we will see Christ's example of service. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. And Ray, you can turn the air off now. John chapter 13, verse 6 through 15. Actually, we're going to go 6 through 17. He came to Simon Peter, who was with him. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now but afterward you will understand peter said to him you shall never wash my feet peter answered him if i do not wash you you have no share with me simon peter said to him lord not my feet only but my hands also and my head jesus said to him the one who has been bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean 
and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, not all of you are clean. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. But if I, then your teacher and Lord, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, I truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated this morning. If you're taking notes, number one, Peter's hasty ignorance. He came to Simon Peter, verse 6, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand. Now, but you, but afterward, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. As the Lord begins to wash the feet of his disciples, we don't know who he began with. So the Bible does not give us an order to which whom he washed first. Amen. But we do know that when he came to Simon Peter, he is confronted with the type of hasty ignorance that Jesus has become well acquainted with in this man, this fisherman. Verse 6, he came to Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? This sentence must be understood in the way that Peter intended John, or the way that Peter intended to say and the way that John intended to convey. Does that make sense? So understand this verse in the way that Peter intended it to be said. And understand this verse in the sense that John intended to convey through the Holy Spirit. Do you come to me? And wash my feet? Or another way of saying it would be you, being who you are, wash the feet of me, being who I am. Simon Peter understood completely what kind of man he was. When he first met the Lord Jesus, he, like all who have been truly regenerated by the Holy Spirit and have been given eyes to see, was confronted with the holiness of Christ. And the sinfulness of himself upon this great catch of fish, which was instructed by the Lord. Luke five tells us that when Peter saw it, he fell down to Jesus' feet, saying, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. We have said that Peter has hasty ignorance. So then what was Peter ignorant of? Peter was not ignorant of the condition of his heart before God. We've said that already. Lord, I'm a sinful man. And you come to wash my feet. This is the task of, of those who are, are lower than low, not for you, Jesus. Peter was also not ignorant of who Christ was and is. Jesus had gathered his disciples once and asked them a weighty question found in Matthew chapter 16. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? His disciples began to respond. Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And he stops and says to them, but who do you say that the Son of Man is? Or who do you say that I am? And as silence 
filled the air surrounding these disciples. One lone disciple was given a clear revelation as to the identity of this man from Nazareth. He speaks up and says, and if you can imagine the midst of silence, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. The Lord Jesus pronounced a blessing on Simon Peter because his eyes had been opened by God and he was given insight into who Christ really was. So, Simon Peter, what is he ignorant of? Well, he's not ignorant of his own heart before God. He understands that he's a sinful man. He's not ignorant of who Christ is. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for. So why in the world would I say anything like, Peter has hasty ignorance? Let me first say that ignorance is in no way, shape, or form an attempt to say that Peter was a stupid man. Ignorance does not mean stupid. It means uninformed. So Peter is not a stupid man. He would become one of the elders of the church in Jerusalem. He would write two letters that would become a part of the canon of Scripture. So in no way, shape, or form is Peter stupid. Amen? But time and time again, in the life of Peter, we see this man of great passion acting upon those passions but being ignorant of the full significance An understanding of those passionate proclamations and those passionate actions. Do you know people like that? Who react off of their passions without realizing the consequences of what they're actually doing? Or what they're actually saying? You can almost hear the tone of the Lord Jesus Christ when Simon Peter starts up with him. Look again. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And because Jesus has dealt with this man for three and a half years... Not to mention the fact that he created this man. He already knows where Peter is going. He already knows what kind of man Peter is. And he answers him and says, What I am doing now, you don't understand, Peter. But you will understand afterwards. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Simon, listen, Simon, before you make your usual hasty judgments, let me just get through this. But Lord, Simon... Can I just get through the thing without you starting up? Just shut it for a second. Right now, you are uninformed. Right now, you are ignorant. You don't understand, but trust me. In due time, you will understand. Listen to the response of Peter. Even after the Lord says, you don't get it now, but you will. Peter says to him in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. Peter's response was one of passion, was it not? It was a passionate response because he understood who the task of washing feet was meant for. Not this man. It was for slaves. It was for low people. And that's not you. What does this give us insight into? It gives us insight. Yes, Peter's passion. But he has a great love and passion for Christ. He, does, he, he, he values Christ. He sees Christ high. But he's unable to... Take in the real meaning of what his eyes see. Do you understand that? So he sees Christ, but he's unable to really see and understand what this all means. He sees, but not fully understanding. J.C. Ryle makes a good point. He says, the heart may often be quite right when the head is often quite wrong. We make allowances for the corruption of understanding. Listen, as well as the corruption of the will. So we know our wills are corrupted. 
And sometimes, many times, most of the time, our understanding is corrupted as well. We must not be surprised to find that the brains, as well as the affections of Adam's children, have been hurt by the fall. The longer we live, the more that we will find it to be true that a believer like Peter may make many mistakes and lack understanding and yet, like Peter, have a right heart before God and get into heaven at last. Oh, there are some who you wonder, will they ever understand? Yet you know their heart is right before God. And sometimes, sadly, but surely, even though your knowledge is greater than theirs, they may be the one to greet you when you arrive in heaven. At this particular point, the Lord Jesus Christ is giving something to Peter. Listen, by doing something for Peter. At this particular time, the Lord Jesus is giving something to Peter by doing something to Peter. Peter's response is an ignorant, is an ignorant one. It's, it's a complete rejection of what? Of what Christ is trying to give him by what Christ is trying to do for him. He's rejecting that giving and he's also rejecting that doing. Simply because, why? He doesn't understand. We often may, are the same kind of people. Question. How do you respond when Christ attempts to do something for you by give or give you something by doing something for you? Or how do you respond when Christ does something for you? Or here's a better way. How do you respond when Christ attempts to give you something? That's probably the best question. How do you respond when Christ attempts to give you something? Some of you are looking at me like, what does that mean? Well, it depends on what he's trying to give me, right? If the creator of the universe gives you anything, would it not be wise for you to accept it no matter what it is? Our problem is much like Peter's. We often don't understand when things come into our lives, which God is giving you. And so we reject it. We call it Satan. We call it uh, El Diablo, whatever you want to call it. And we refuse what God is trying to do in our lives simply because we don't understand it. And does he not know what's best for his sheep? God does. What is the purpose of anything that Christ gives you at all? Is it not for his eternal glory and for your own sanctifying good? Amen. So when it comes, it may not be pleasant. I asked the guys this past week at the race. Are you okay with criticism? And one of our great brothers said, I don't like it. It's not fun when I receive it, but I understand that it's for my good, ultimately. So, Peter, receiving something or rejecting something from Christ, that even though he doesn't understand it and sees it as a, as a shameful thing, ultimately Christ is saying, you don't get it, but it's for your good. You don't see it right now, but you will. And oftentimes when we get something in our lives at that particular moment, we don't see it. We don't understand it. We don't even want it. But in hindsight, when we look back, we see it was for our good. Is that not the trouble? Or is not the trouble that you endure ultimately for your good? How did you receive it when it first came? Of course we rebuked it. Of course we rejected it. 
It's not the word of God that is being preached to you this morning. However difficult it may be, ultimately for your good. How do you receive it when it comes? We may not understand it when it comes. We may be ignorant of ultimate, of its ultimate sanctifying work, but rest assured, it is for glory and for good. Peter did not understand this act of Christ, and he refused it. You shall never wash my feet. And what is the response of Christ? Verse 8. If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him in response to this, Lord, not my feet also, or not my feet only, but my hands and, and my head. In typical hasty ignorance, Peter makes a declaration. If that's the case, Lord, give me a bath. Is this not the pattern of our dear brother? Lord, if it's you, call me out into the water. Okay, come on. He begins to sink. Lord, help me. Lord, you are the son of God, the Messiah. Lord, I will never allow you to go to the cross. I won't allow it. Lord, I will die for you. I tell you the truth. I don't even know the man. We love our dear brother Peter, don't we? Because he's so much like us. That's why you laugh. Because we've made so many hasty, ignorant judgments. And we so identify with our brother Peter. We often go to extremes without truly understanding what, where those extremes will lead us. And in this case, Peter is confronted with a reality. You love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Then I must wash your feet. Lord, never. You will never wash my feet. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. If you don't let me wash your feet, then you have no part in a relationship with me. And upon hearing that he could potentially be separated from Christ based upon washing of my feet, if that's the case, then Lord, wash my entire body. Because Simon Peter was horrified at this particular thought of having no part in Christ. He was horrified at the thought, horrified at the notion that I could be separated from you. If that's the case, then whatever you must do to me, do it to me. Will you have that same kind of attitude when Christ Jesus himself allows whatever to come into your life, to come into your life and says, I bring this into your life because if it does not come into your life, you have no part of me. Will you embrace it that way and do as Peter did to go all in? Not to just say, okay, then just my feet. But I am so committed to you that I will go all in. Take all of me. Are you that committed to Christ? That if the potential to be separated from him comes, you will say, no, Christ. Have all of me. Have my eyes. Have my hands. Have my feet. Have my body. Take my instruments and use them for righteousness sake. Take all of me. Whatever it takes to be united to me, to you. I am willing to embrace. At first glance, it may seem like Jesus is alluding to baptism. And although baptism is an ordinance of the church, it is a biblical sign that we have been united to Christ in his life, death and resurrection. And likewise, again, to the church. Baptism is not what the Lord Jesus Christ is alluding to here. It's something deeper than that. It's something, although baptism is great, it is something greater than that. Jesus was, in effect, marking out 
through the washing of feet those who were his. He was essentially washing symbolically their sins and pointing to a place that he was soon to go to. Jesus was also rebuking Peter for his unwise objection, uh, uh, objection to the symbolic act that he was about to perform. Brothers and sisters, no one can be saved or no one can have any part of a relationship without or apart from the redeeming power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless the Lord Jesus Christ washes your sins away, you have no part in Christ. Unless Christ washes your sins, you have no part in him. This was true of Simon Peter, and this is true of us here today. The Lord Jesus Christ was marking out those who were his, all of them, except one. All of them, except one. Verse 10, Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So we perform the act for everyone, but don't get it twisted. Just because I washed your feet doesn't mean you're saved. He's making it clear, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. Now let me just start with something very, very basic, and this is rudimentary. The Lord Jesus Christ is not saying you don't need to take a shower. Let me say that again. For the sake of all who love you and all who live around you, Jesus is not saying you don't need to bathe yourselves. Bathe yourselves. Do it often and use soap when you do so. I mean, he's not saying you don't need a bath. Amen? Can we all say amen? Amen. Praise God. We are clean people here at RBC. Physically. J.C. Ryle has a great point on this. He says, Christ is speaking of the washing of sin. And through that washing, justification. He that is pardoned and justified by me is entirely washed from all of his sins. And only needs the daily forgiveness of the daily defilement he contracts in traveling through a sinful world. Once washed, justified, and accepted by Christ, you are forever clean before God. Forever clean before God. But there is one exception. Jesus did not want all of the people standing there to think that just because I washed your feet, don't be deceived to think that you were saved from what you were about to do. Because he knew that person's act before that person even did it. We're going to talk more about Judas next week. Number two, the example of Christ that we must follow. Verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, You don't understand what I have done to you. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should follow. Do just as I have done, and you should do just as I have done. Now, get the picture again. Can you imagine... These men are having a dispute among themselves as to who among them was going to be remembered as the greatest. And then the one who is the greatest stands up and begins to do the most menial task among them. He washes their feet. And think about this. In the washing of feet, 
There's a rebuke there. Because as they're arguing, as to who should wash whose feet, he rebukingly stands up and starts to do what they would not do for one another. And shame must have come upon them as they sat there and allowed the master of the universe to wash their feet. And when the room was filled with this silence and filled with this shame, if you can imagine, all of their feet have been washed. They are sitting there in shame at their pride. And then he begins to put his clothes back on as they are all saying nothing but watching him. And he goes and resumes his position, seated at the place of honor among them. Do you understand what I have done to you? No, they did not understand what he had just done. They were shocked by what he had just done. They were ashamed of themselves and almost maybe ashamed of him as well because of what he's just done. That task was meant for lowly, shameful people. And what he has just done has made them ashamed of themselves and possibly ashamed of him. What he has just done. They did not understand at that moment. But they would soon understand. Why? Even when we read this, we may think that the point of this is washing each other's feet. I came from a church one time where the pastor, in attempts to express how humble he was, would have everyone come around and he would take a towel and wipe their shoes. This is not the point of that passage. And he was not a humble man. It was, it is very well that that might be the point, but I doubt it. Because there are undertones that are taking place in this passage. They are not seen in this passage. But they are pointing to another place of shame and refuse. The cross. In the same way that, that the disciples were ashamed of themselves and ashamed almost of Christ, the same way they would be ashamed when Christ would soon be taken to the cross. The foot washing was a beautiful display of Christ's love for his own. And just within a few hours, just within a few hours, the Lord Jesus Christ would take another shameful position, carrying a Roman cross and ultimately being crucified upon it. The foot washing, shocking to the disciples. How could he do this? But not half as shocking as the notion of the Messiah dying a hideous death, a shameful death by crucifixion, a death that was only meant for the damned. Are you getting that? These two events, the foot washing and the crucifixion, are one beautiful example the honored, glorious Son of God taking the role of a despised servant for the salvation of many. Do you see that? If you think this is shameful, you haven't seen nothing yet. If you think this is, this is below me, you haven't seen anything yet because Christ knew who he was. And yet he was not prideful enough or so full of pride that he would not take on the task that even you and I would not take on. For our sake, 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him sin who knew no sin. 
that we might become the righteousness of God. You young people in here don't understand it. But I pray that someday you will, as the gospel is preached more and more to you, that he took your place, that you should have been the one on that cross, that you should have been the one that that was shamed in front of the public, and he took that shame for you. That you should have been the one to endure the wrath of God, and yet he took that place for you. Whether you are young or whether you are old. Christ has taken a lowly position for those whom he has called as his own, his own sheep. He was despised and rejected by men. You should have been despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, you should be that person. As one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That should have been us. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. The place that should have been ours, he took that place. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was The the chastisement that brought us peace. He took that. And by his stripes or by his wounds, we are healed. No, they did not understand what Christ had done for them. No, they did not understand what that was pointing to at that particular time. But he was pointing to them an example that they must follow. He said in verse 13, if you call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. You follow Christ. You entrust your lives to him. He is your teacher. Well, then. If he is your teacher and he has not been too proud to come down and do the most menial task to take on the things that you should have taken on. then there should not be one single thing that you are not willing to do for one another. If our Lord, the ultimate example, was willing to come down and do the lowest of things, then there should not be one thing that we are not willing to do for one another. This must be true among us. That we must be marked by people who are humbly willing to serve. Who are, who are joyfully wanting to serve. There should be no task that is above us that we deem ourselves too good to perform. There should be no person that we are will, un, that we are willing, not willing to touch. There should be no person that we deem outside of our circle of friends. If they are a part of the church. We are the body of Christ. We are here to serve one another and to serve the world. That is one of the the, the commands of Scripture. Serve one another. I said to the members yesterday that it is dangerous when you only have two or three friends in church and they are your only circle of friends. You reach out to no other persons. I worry about people like that who they only have their small little clique. 
And they reach out to no one else. They touch no one else. They, they, they say ew to everybody else. No, those people are dangerous and they become cancerous to a church. Because those two or three begin to gossip among them two or three. And they begin to, to start becoming a cancer that, 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 that is ugly to the church. No, if you have friends over, invite all of the church. If you're going to invite someone to lunch, don't just invite one person. This is a small church. Invite everyone. You might as well. There's only 12 really men in the church that are here consistent in members. Invite them all. If you're a woman, invite all the women. Don't just say, this is me and my little clique. becomes obvious that people say, I'm not in their circle of friends. When we come here to church, if you see a piece of paper on the floor, don't wait for Ray or Joe to pick it up. Pick it up. If you come to the church and you see something that, that needs to be done, this is your church. Do it faithfully. If you go to Hungry and the Homeless and you see that Louis is doing all the work, don't stand and watch him. Help him. If you are out with puppets in the park, if you are out in any kind of evangelistic thing that we have going on, or if you're just with the church, serve your church. This should begin at your home, in your home. There should be people in your home that you are willing to serve because you love them, you care for them, and it spreads out to the rest of the body. Don't serve your your church better than you serve your own family. There should be the same kind of service there. There's no favoritism here. Amen. Christ is showing us an example that we must follow. First Peter commands us that we are to be clothed in humility. Philippians 2 commands us that we are to have the same mind of Christ who did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. We must be people who are ready at the drop of a hat to serve and to give our lives for the service of God's people. Amen. Amen. Listen to this by J.C. Ryle. I suggest his commentary if you are looking for one. Well, would it be for the church if this very simple truth was more remembered? Listen, and real humanity was so sadly rare. Perhaps there is no, listen to this, everybody look at me, listen to this. There is, perhaps there is no sight so displeasing in God's eyes as a self-conceited, self-satisfied, self-contented, stuck-up professor of religion. Not professor in the sense that they teach, but one who claims Christ, and yet you are self-conceited, self-satisfied, self-contented, and stuck up. What are the things that hate that God hates? Oh, he hates pride. He hates a haughty look. The one who believes that they are above everyone else has not truly been washed by Christ. My dear friends, I pray that you guard your hearts against pride. I pray that you view your presence in this local church, not as what can the local church do for me, but what can I do for the local church? Not to quote John F. Kennedy, but those of you who are old enough understand we are here to serve Christ and to serve his bride. This is the example that Christ has laid out for us. And we ought to rejoice in promoting. Listen to this. We ought to rejoice in promoting the happiness of others. Amen. We ought to rejoice in that. Going to someone and just giving them some cookies. Going to someone and just giving them a hug. Going to someone and encouraging them. Edifying them. Look about, look, look about the people around you. Have you prayed for any of these people by name this past week? Have you? 
And if you have not, then ask yourself, why not? We ought to rejoice in doing even the smallest acts of kindness. And there are many of you in this church who do that, who delight in doing such small things, but those things bring such delight to the church, and you are blessings to the church. There are two people that come to mind, Joe and Ophelia. Joe, who so faithfully and joyfully, I've never seen a mad face on the man, serves the church is happy, is encouraging the people of God, is, is, is not above doing anything in this church. He works with myself and my brother throughout the week. He gets commands from us all the time because we both think we're the boss. And yet he does it with joy. Sister Ophelia, who always is encouraging. If you were to hear a transcript of the things that she said, you would think that she's just a teenage girl who's just so happy and full of joy because she says things that come out of her mouth should be things that come out of a teenager's mouth. And yet we love her. We love the the joy and the spirit that she brings to this church. And she is so often willing to serve. Any suggestion I give? Sounds great, Pastor. You're the smartest man in the universe. I need to hear that. My wife reminds me that I'm not all the time. (laughs) Their acts of kindness and service have been great examples and great witnesses and in great encouragement to the church. And we should, as I do, look to them and say they are following that example of humble service. Let me follow that example. They are following the example of Christ and we ought to do the same. And each of you are doing that in your own different ways. We ought to counter the pleasure to lessen the sorrow in people's lives of this church and to multiply their joy. Amen. But we, like the disciples often, are just waiting for someone else to wash our feet. Instead of going and washing someone else's. Did you hear what I said? All of that stuff we said amen to. And yet we'll still wait and say, well, who's going to come wash my feet first? Let us be the one who takes the initiative that as people are standing around and watching you follow the example of Christ and you stand up and you begin to serve. God, the holy, righteous creator of all creation, created man in his image. He created him to to love him and to worship him. But man fell short of the glory of God and rebelled against his creator. Man fell in sin, plunged himself and all of his children into the depths of depravity. We were hopelessly lost, unwilling and unable to save ourselves from the sin that separated us from God and brought upon us the impending wrath of God. But God, being rich in mercy, voluntarily, without any necessity, without any obligation, condescended to man, became like one of us, made himself in human likeness, the likeness of a servant. And he lived a life that we could never live. And he died the death that we deserved. And brothers and sisters, he served us by giving himself to us. He took our place. He did not belong on the cross, just as he did not belong at the feet of the disciples washing their feet. But yet he did so. He took our place. He committed no wrong. He died the death that we deserved. But then showing that he was and is God and that he had the power over death and sin rose from the dead, conquering sin, death and the grave. And he died 
to enforce sin once for all. So that those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ alone for their salvation would be saved. For it is by grace that you have been saved, and this not of yourselves, lest anyone should boast. Brothers and sisters, if you have not trusted in Christ today, then I urge you, place your faith in him. Turn from your sins. If you would like to know more about the gospel, which I just shared with you, speak to me or one of our elders or one of the people as you're exiting the church, and they'd love to talk to you more about that this morning and pray with you. Verse 16 in in closing. My nephew is taking notes. Wow. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Listen now, in closing, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the result of obeying the command of humble service before Christ. Blessed if you do them. This morning, we celebrate the the ultimate and perfect example of humility in the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate his past work that is completed and finished. His present work that he is presently working in our lives. And the future work of redemption in which we will celebrate with him as redemption is consummated. Let us stand.